brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Welcome back to Beyond Classified. I'm Chris Matthew. Today my guest is Natalie Zett. She is a writer, actor, and photographer, and musician. She has worked as a freelance journalist for magazines and papers since her late teens. She has also taught others how to write for community newspapers at the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis. And during the last few years, she became a family historian. She is also a graduate from Luther Seminary with a Master's of Arts degree in Systematic Theology. She is drawn to misplaced and forgotten stories because they're more compelling than the world would let us believe. Natalie, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing okay, Chris. How about you? Happy Friday. Happy Friday. I'm excellent. I've been looking forward to this discussion. This is going to be fascinating. We're going to be talking about a bit about your book, Flower in the River, A Family Tale Finally Told. And the the main character is actually not a person. It's a tragic event that I've never heard about before, the Eastland disaster of 1915. But what's most interesting is what you've experienced while writing your book. For now, I'm just going to say that it was a supernatural intervention that greatly influenced the information that went in your book is that fair to say that's fair to say and it's also fair to say chris that i did not uh, expect that nor was i real happy when it started happening so but it happened and as a journalist i had to report the way it happened right on well that's great this is gonna be so interesting but this is your first time on so let's start with more about yourselves your background mm-hmm. and what led you to write the book Sure. Uh, I live in the Twin Cities, but I'm not from the Twin Cities. I just moved here. I flipped a coin one day and I thought I needed to get far, far away from my family. I was born in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, which is also known for another tragedy. And that would be the flood of 1889. And we Johnstown people talk about that as if it happened last year. And so we we definitely are kind of a snake bit crew. And so uh, my father was an entertainer and he got a job on a radio station in Cleveland. So we moved there. I grew up there and never felt at home there. And I think much of my young adult life was spent trying to find home. So I went to different places thinking I might find myself there. And I ended up in the Twin Cities because I didn't know anybody. I had no family nearby. So I thought, and then I landed here. And that's a story in and of itself too, that's, that's tied to the book. I 
came from, I would say, challenged financial backgrounds. I was always learning how to do side hustles to survive. And one of those side hustles was writing as well as performing. So I was a freelance writer from the time I was in high school. So we're talking lots of decades. And uh, I never really wanted to be a book author because honestly, money's not made in books unless you're J.K. Rowling or Stephen King or one of those people. So even the local uh, Twin Cities is a big place for, for writers. And so all the writers would say, don't write a book. You're going to you know, lose your money. So, oh, whatever. So but then I had I inherited this story right after my father died in 1996. My mother's sister, who was, I thought, dead. She was a much older woman. She was living in Chicago, a former reporter. Out of the blue, she decided to send this 38-page family document to me of the history of that side of the family, which I knew nothing about. And I think had my father not died, I would have just thrown it in a drawer and just thought, I got other things to do. But I looked at it because I was trying to find something. And I was feeling all of a sudden remorse for having left, you know, left them behind and disconnected myself from the family. And all of a sudden I wanted to get back to something that couldn't be. So this document, I started looking at it and I thought, whoa, uh, I never knew about any of this. And one of the things that stood out was the story of a ship disaster that happened in downtown Chicago. And growing up in Cleveland, I knew Chicago history really well. I mean, who doesn't love the gangsters? the stockyards, all this stuff, the fire. I mean, I thought, how can this be? Then when I read it, 800 plus people died. I thought, what in the blazes is this? And then, and then I saw that my 19 year old great aunt was killed on this thing. And I, my, my, um, my mother's sister was sending me photos of this woman and she was beautiful. And I thought, oh my, and it got my heartstrings going. I think because again, I was already open and so I started, I was a reporter, a published journalist in the Twin Cities, well-known in the Twin Cities for my writing for magazines and papers. So I wasn't like as if I'd never written before. So I thought, I'm going to uncover this and write about this. And Chris, I couldn't find a thing about it. I went to the libraries and the internet wasn't quite the thing back in the late 90s that it is now. There was nothing there. So I did manage to write an article. I did manage to find the most boring book ever about the tragedy. But there was nothing that had the heart and soul in this. So I wrote the article, published it, and then it went um, from the little newspaper I was working on, it went to the big paper. Somebody at the Star Tribune said, when are you going to write a book? Somebody at the other daily said, well, how about the book? I thought, book? Hell no, I'm not going to do that. And um, But it planted the seed. And then I just decided to pick it up again slowly. I thought, how do I write about a time I've never lived in with a family I didn't know? And all this stuff that I just felt so inadequate. So my first article was a book report. It was pretty good. You know, people were interested in it. But I thought also, too, how do I tap into this? And so I started to tap into it. And then it went from a book report, kind of a journalistic event, to a series of events that I still to this day can't explain um, away. I can't explain away. I would have to say, though, I was self-conscious about it. Um, about some of the things I was uncovering. And I'll give you an example. I live in the Twin Cities, which is about, mm, about maybe a seven-hour drive from Chicago to Chicago. So I drove down there to the first time to see this woman's um, grave. And I'd never been to the cemetery. Um, it's outside of Chicago. And I barely can find my way out of a paper bag. And this is before GPS was what it was. So I circled, found the cemetery, and it's massive. And I thought, what did you do? What did you do? 
I wanted to see her grave to make sure that I'm not imagining this. And when I went to the cemetery, I was looking around for a while and I couldn't find it. And then all of a sudden I realized I parked right in front of it. Things like that were happening. And then again, I learned later, this is not unusual at all, but at the time I was pretty isolated and honestly embarrassed because I thought, am I losing my mind? Am I going mad with grief about what was happening with my, with my father and all that? And then I should say too, when I was um, working on this thing, I'd be writing and then things would happen in my apartment, like things flying off the refrigerator and the twin cities is not on an earthquake fault line. Okay. And it would happen several times. And I thought, what in the name of God is this? And I knew actually what it was because um, back, I'm going to backtrack a little bit growing up with my father's side of the family there, they're Eastern European. And they're also, it's a very complex identity. We are part Romani gypsy, as we don't like to be called part Carpatho Rusin, which is another ethnic minority and also part Ashkenazi Jewish. So we had a lot of interesting folk magic superstition blended with the culturally acceptable faith stuff. So it wasn't as if I hadn't seen people talking to the dead. It wasn't as if I didn't grow up with fortune tellers and witches. I did on that side of the family, but I thought I was too sophisticated to be part of that. And my family members used to say, you've inherited it. You can do this. And I thought, oh Lord, I got enough trouble, you know, just being alive. So um, all of a sudden, all those memories, when I was working on this, this piece about my aunt who was killed, came flooding back. And I thought, oh my gosh, am I actually tapping into her? Or is she tapping into me? By the very act of attention to this long lost unknown branch of the family, did I bring them to life externally? Or is it my blood that all of a sudden has found another, a spectrum area, if you want to call it that, in my blood that has come to life because I know this. And then it, it seemed like it was rapid fire. Um, the other thing I should mention, Chris, is just comical. Remember when I said I moved up here to get away from my family? Yeah. When I looked at this document that my aunt had written, my my living aunt, my mom's sister, I kept seeing that other family members had immigrated to Western Wisconsin, just across the border from where I was living. In other words, my great great grandmother and her children, lots of children, were just buried less than an hour from here. So I had moved to the mothership, and I didn't even realize it. So. It's that family line that I was following all this time, but didn't realize it. Wow. So my preconceived notions of how clever I was and how independent I was and how detached I was from my family fell apart. And it's funny now, but at the time I thought, who am I? Who's guiding the ship? Um, how much in control am I of my fate? And I really didn't know. And I really felt like I was to the edge. It wasn't pleasant let alone all the supernatural stuff. I thought, stay out of my freaking apartment, you. I mean, I'll write about you. But it was very disconcerting. And also, there weren't too many people I could talk to about this. Um, it was kind of a lonely journey, but I thought, I have to stay with this. I don't know what it's going to be. But at the end, when I was not done writing, but I reached a place I had like something like, you know, 80,000 words. That's not an article. That's a book. And I thought, well, I don't know how to write a book like this, but I had written a book like that. And, but I still had to get, um, writing articles is one thing. A book is a different set of, of um, abilities, which I didn't quite have at that point. So I thought, let's just try to put this together. I created fiction because it was easier to make the truth known through the fiction. And the fact is I've been around, but not I wasn't around in 1915. So I had to construct, what was she like? Tell me what the family was like. And I had to put that together from stories that I heard and then kind of make up the rest. I had to go into the history of Chicago. So there was a lot of 
I had to become a polymath. I had to learn history. I had to learn different languages or get better at different languages because my family is, again, we, we have um, speakers of all sorts of languages and all sorts of alphabets, such as the Cyrillic one that you're seeing now with the stuff in Ukraine. I have a lot of family there as well. So there's all these mixes of families. And so I had to, I can't integrate them all, but I can pay attention to each one of them and bring them. You come forward, you go back. We're going to talk about you now and we're going to bring this to life. I had to bring the story and I had to also ask the question, why, this is the anniversary of the Titanic, by the way, today. Why was the Eastland lost? Why is the Titanic remembered? And there's no single reason, but I think the class of people we Eastern European people are, when you think of us, you think either, you know, Russian villains in these various procedural dramas or James <laughs> Bond films, or you think of Bela Lugosi and Count Dracula or the villagers. I mean, those are my people. And so it's one of those things where we're thought of as kind of almost jokes. Or um, if you think, why well, I didn't mention the Romani in my book, I thought I didn't want to rely on the cliche because there's so much more to us than the cliches that you see. Yes, we are magical on that side. Yes, we do these things, but we are far from cliches. We've had struggles, we've had difficulties and we're complex. And so how do I respect the departed in this, in this that, the other question I asked myself. So it was a gravitas of dealing with supernatural, which I really didn't want to deal with, dealing with the dead because the dead were dealing with me. And again, as I always tell people, it's we're future dead people ourselves. So I thought, what do I want to leave behind? And I didn't write the book. I actually published it as an independent author because when I had agents, they wanted me to rework it, to make it palatable, to make it categorizable. I said, no, I'm not doing that. So Amazon did that for me. It took, it took it into the historical fiction bracket that I designated, but it also made it occult fiction, which I thought, what? But that's how Amazon's bots saw it. So I thought, that's another unexpected unexpected consequence of this thing. So I've gone the circuitous route. I've talked a lot. <laughs> Do you have any questions because of this kind yes. of a crazy story? Well, okay. yeah, it, it's an amazing story. And I think uh, a good place to start with it is for you to tell us about the Eastland disaster of 1915 oh, sure. and how your, how your family was involved. Sure. Um, in Chicago, now, what I don't know is do, when I say Western Electric, I'm not sure people even though what that is anymore. But at one point, that Western Electric was a company that, that basically brought in the second revolution, second industrial revolution in the United States in, in the late um, 19th, early 20th century. And so if there was an aspect of manufacturing, electrical things, films, you know, syncing sound with, with motion, Western telephones, telegraphs, Western Electric was everything. And they had this massive facility in Chicago that was almost like a city within a city called Hawthorne Works. And a lot of people that if you've majored in business, you've studied the Hawthorne studies where they first did the motion studies. So it employed a gazillion people. So anyway, every year, Western Electric had a company picnic and they would rent these steamers and they would go across Lake Michigan. If you know Chicago at all, it's just it's a big, you know, it's a massive, massive uh, thing there. Go across Lake Michigan to Michigan City, Indiana, to the dunes which was this big picnic ground. I've been there, you know, as a, as a student. And so it was supposed to be a day of fun and Western Electric was doing all these cool things and everyone had to go to this picnic. As far as I knew, there was no, it was mandatory and you had to buy your own clothes. Photo opportunities, they had photographers on site to take, you know, beautiful, stunning photos. And all this was going on. And the first ship was called the Eastland. And 
I guess 25,000 people stormed this thing and it was already top designated a, a, a top heavy ship. And because of the Titanic, our friend, the Titanic, a few years before they overloaded the top with lifeboats, then they put concrete at the bottom. Can you see, I mean, I'm not an engineer, but I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> yeah. So the thing, when they got, when they were all aboard, the thing started listing, which meant, you know, that was sort of like going this way, you know, to, to basically to the dock. It tipped over. Uh, one woman who was aboard said it was like an egg just like rolling over. And so people were crushed. They drowned. And, and all the photographers, there was a photographer on site, June Fujita. He got, he, I think he thought, I'm going to photograph this picnic. What he got were all these photos of all this stuff, this mayhem that was going on. Um, the captain and the crew got out and the captain basically tried to stop people from drilling into the side of the thing to, to rescue people. So there was just pandemonium and chaos. So this is July 24th. It's a sun, uh, uh, you know, sunny, I guess it was a rainy overcast day. All these people are killed. What do you do with all these bodies? And you've got to pluck them out of the river. And then, um, so Western Electric, you know, like, oh, whatever. And they were trying to put together, um, you know, horses. And I guess they had some motor cars and stuff. Where do you haul these bodies in July? They took them to the 2nd Regiment Armory, which for, for a long time was eventually became Oprah Studios, Harpo Studios. So that's the other kind of interesting coincidence. So they took the bodies down there and they laid them all out. And my grandmother, who was supposed to have been on that thing, but she gave her tickets to this younger sister because my grandmother was pregnant. That I didn't tell you, but my grandmother should have been aboard the thing. And I have a chapter called One Way Ticket. And it's just, that's what it was for my Aunt Martha. And so found her body, identified it. And then um, the, the craziness was that there weren't enough undertakers, there weren't enough caskets, there weren't enough mourners for all of those people. Most of the people who were killed were 18, 19 years old, women, you know, women and young men, you know, looking to meet people, looking for hookups, you know, we're going to, you know, hook up with our own kind or, you know, most Eastern European, Southern Italian folks, working class people, day of fun, whole families were killed. A lot of them are buried in the Bohemian National Cemetery in Chicago, which is quite the, it's a beautiful um, place. So that's, that's what happened. Western Electric never had a picnic after that. And for the most part, there was a lot of accusations. And as far as I know, people paid a little bit of money to each person, but um, there was there was very little um, that was was done to uh, assist these people. My um, my the sister who was killed, my my grandmother's sister, was basically the sole support for the family because her own father had died about eighteen months before. Her mother, my great grandmother, cracked up. Um, she would go to the to the uh, trolley station every day and wait for Martha to get off. A lot of people cracked up after that. There was no mental health service. There was no, this is before the, the, the new deal, before Roosevelt came in and did what he did to help people out. There's no social security, nothing. So whatever was, they got some help from the Red Cross and an, an Eastland society, but you were all kind of on your own and then left to deal with the, tra the trauma. So that's what happened. Um, and there was, again, there were a lot of trials. I haven't followed all the trials, but it was it was just a mess. It was really a mess. Do you think it was kind of brushed under the rug because of the, the negligence involved in, you know, the whole construction and everything around it? You, you could say that. Uh, somebody's argued with me saying, well, well, it wasn't intentional. Well, of course it wasn't intentional, but there were there were warnings. I, I mean, there were 
this thing was used, I think, to cross Lake Erie and Cleveland a few times, too. And people would, would say that, oh, this thing is kind of like, you know, seems to be unsteady. But the, there was also a competition amongst these ships during that time of who could be the fastest. And so they sacrificed certain things. And so I, again, I'm not an engineer, but I think that they very well could have discovered negligence. And again, because the captain fought the people, fought the divers, fought people who wanted to drill holes in the side of the Eastland, that also was a weird thing. And the fact that the captain and the crew just got out and you know, did they try to help anybody? I don't think so. And a lot of people were saying that people were scrambling over each other, shoving each other under. And it was just, it was not, it was kind of every man for himself literally because a lot of the women were the ones who were killed right. so there was there was a lot it's complex it's like everything else it's like i'd like to say it's it's being lost has to do with the class of people because there was nobody famous or moneyed aboard i mean our folks if you don't have that kind of um gravitas it's like it's, it's easy to to get ignored and again because they had no ability to kind of write about this or go on or whatever they just had to make a living we have to get through what about the rest of the family what about the rest of the kids they pushed it to the back oh. and it got lost in our family it got lost but i can say this my grandmother who again had to had to um bear the guilt for giving her sister those tickets and identified the body she got out she divorced her first husband got out of chicago about five years later um married again and then she had my mother and and she died um, when my mother was three years old. So that's why that, that particular story got lost. The Chicago family had little contact with my mother. My mother was raised by her father in Pennsylvania. So there's all this fracture that happened that broke this thing up. And um, when I did meet people who are descendants of this tragedy, they said, even if you'd grown up here, you probably wouldn't have known about it because people did not talk about things like that. And I would say the people of my grandmother's generation, even my parents' generation, they did not talk about trauma. Oh. They buried it, drank their way through, smoked their way through, whatever they did, but <laughs> yeah. they did not. They, that was how they coped. And there was a stalwart list too of the of the um, the working class. You know, they went back to the coal mines, they went back to the the steel mills, whatever they did, whatever they had to do to survive, the stockyards, and just you know forget about it if you can. But the trouble is it traveled down the family to all sorts of bizarre things that happened in that, that side of the family. Well, speaking of bizarre, let's get into some of the unexplained and kind of uh, supernatural or paranormal aspects of mm -hmm. what started happening to you. You said it started kind of as uh, synchronicities like you mm -hmm. looking for the yeah, grave right. site and just driving over, mm -hmm. being right on top of it. What else started happening? Memories that... I think that I realized that my memories were kind of like data in, in an old computer system where they, I had forgotten about them, but they weren't erased. And when I got this um, document from my mother's sister, and then the, this photograph fell out of it of this woman on the front page of the Chicago Herald missing, it was like, I saw her once before. And I remembered as a child, seeing somebody in our living room when we were doing of all things, watching the Wizard of Oz as a family, you know, and I said, well, who's this woman? Because this young woman seemed to be walking in and I thought she was one of our relatives because she looked like one of our relatives, yet she was dressed all, all wrong. I wrote about that in the book. She was dressed like I called it old fashioned dress. Who's the lady in the old fashioned dress? And my mother looked at me and thought, oh, just, you know, I was I was a handful in terms of just always asking questions and things like that. And my mother said, there's nobody here. I said, but there is. She's right here. And then, you know, it was forgotten. But then I started to remember these things and I thought, oh, my. I've seen you before. I remember you. 
And then the other supernatural aspect came from my father's side of the family. I had my, my dad's oldest sister was actually, she called herself a white witch. It wasn't a racial thing. It was just kind of the way she practiced her craft, so to speak. And she foresaw in the future, this character, she said, she's going to come into your life and, but it's, it's got to be the right time. And I can't tell you any more about it. And I thought, what are you talking about? So there were all these, these memories, if they weren't supernatural experiences of my own, they were people like her that came back to the forefront that I just dismissed earlier. Because I thought, oh, they're just like the kooks from the family. I used to tell people I wanted, I wanted Leva to be her and I got the Adams family instead. It was just like, oh my God, these people. And so all these memories, I had the, the past coming, but I also had other things where I apparently was following again, this woman's footsteps. We were both born in the same place. We both kept working our way. Chicago, um, the first time I visited it, I remember feeling like I'd been here before. And I know a lot of people have deja vu, but it was almost like it was unsettling. And I thought, I've got to get out of here. Um, when I was a little girl, like four years old, my dad, uh, the, we lived in Cleveland. So my dad took us aboard a ship that was moored in Lake Erie. And I wasn't afraid of anything. I used to try to fly off the garage and things like that. I was very, uh, very brave little kid. But we were climbing halfway up the gangplank. I said, we got to get out of here. I started screaming. I froze. I could not get aboard this thing. So my dad had to push his way back down and say, what's wrong with you? We're going to die if we get on this thing. So just stuff like that came back. And I thought I was starting to piece together a life that I thought was just mine. And I thought, what of this woman is living inside of me as much as is she living outside of me? I think the first inclination is to think it's something external. I thought, what is written into the blood? Why is this coming forth? You know, why her? Why whatever? The easy answer would be, well, she never had a chance to live. And there's probably some truth to that. But the other part is what we what is so, in a sense, normal, so something we overlook. We always go for the sensational in these stories, in these stories of the supernatural. What if it's as blah as, you know, look at your blood. And that's why I always encourage people. The, the gift of this book is I hope people will look into their own past because you'll be surprised what you find. And if you feel really disconnected from your family, as I did as a younger person, I was always taken off and getting away from them. Um, there's a saying in, in Hebrew, uh, Lador Vador, from generation to generation, this connective tissue that you really can't break it. Even if I always say in, in families, it's like, you know, somebody's murdered, the first people that they look at are the family members. So it's not like I'm romanticizing family. But again, this is who we come from. This is who we are and how complex we are. So I always hope people will have the courage. Like, don't look at how I did it. Look at what you could do. And you might find some crazy stuff too, some a hot mess like I have found. And I think finding her, finding Martha, um, and knowing about her and seeing too that she was also really out there. I mean, the final photo I have of her is dressed in men's clothes with a bunch of her women friends smoking a cigarette. I thought, what were you up to there in 1915? You know, And I thought she, all of my family on both sides, they're very much iconoclastic, very much um, don't follow the rules, do their own thing. And it's not out of affectation. It's just definitely, well, we've got to, we've got to follow this. We've got to do that. And I think my not fitting in was probably a result of being from those people. I wasn't trying to, everybody I think wants to be accepted when they're a teenager and things like that. And I thought it was really hard. I couldn't do it. And the older you get, the less you care. But, um, but I realized it's, my dad used to always say it's in the blood. It's in the blood. You've got to go with the blood. 
And I think once you tune into it, once you focus, you can't unfocus. You can't ever forget. And yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, I think that's fascinating that you said the disconnections with the blood. And I was Mm -hmm. just thinking, you know, DNA connections, ancestral Mm -hmm. connections, that Mm -hmm. they're always there through, uh, through the ages, through our DNA, through our blood. And I was listening to a podcast the other day with a doctor uh, who was talking, and he's not going to be known in any mainstream circles, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget his name, but he was talking about how he's doing experiments with live blood, but even when you take it out of a human's body within the the, the next few hours or so, there's whatever you do to that human, even though the blood's not in it, it will still somehow affect the blood, which I find Whoa. very interesting. So there's some kind of, like, you know strange uh you know dna uh energetic connection with you and your blood and i'm wondering if that could also be with dna for your ancestors you know i think i think wow this is really cool you have to tell me offline who that is but you know the other thing that i was thinking of when you were saying that chris is that there's another um uh, he's i don't know if he's a medical doctor but he was talking about the fact that certain families you know when when you talk about brain fog insomnia moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. Midi specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved, Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Temple University is ranked among the top 50 public universities in the U.S. Through hands-on learning opportunities and world-class faculty, Temple students are prepared to soar in their careers. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Gypsy folk, let's say the Romani side of my family, and we're known for what? Fortune-telling, we're known for tinsmithing, we're known for talking to the dead, whatever. I grew up with that, of course. It's not just a cliche, it's something this group does. And... Romani is very, we're very complex too. We're from, my, mine's basically Hungarian, Slovak. So that's a different, and they were settled. They weren't in caravans, but they were still doing these things. So it's like, what is it about certain families? Is there something in the DNA that could be tested? Because why do some of us, I've always been, in, I would call it intuitive. I've always been able to see, you know, several feet ahead. I've always been able to read people. And again, I just chalked it up. I would call it intuition because that was more socially acceptable, but I thought, right. no, I can see your life force. And and again, I think that's one of those things where it's not true of everybody. I thought everybody could do this. And then when I um, look at my family and I look at the history of the stories I've been told, and I heard many years ago that one of our ancestors was burned as a witch. Well, I found her. Um, she was killed in the, not in Salem, because we weren't here yet, but in Slovakia in the 15th century. I found the record. And I thought, whoa, so this has been going on for a long time. So I also wonder about those of us that have this ancestry, this legacy, 
um, how much of it is learned and how much of it is just there. And I'd have to say half and half maybe, or even, it's like, I think you already know a lot, but you have to focus in on it and you have to not be afraid of it. And that's what I had a hard time with. It wasn't as if I just, oh, what fun. It's like, I thought, oh, crap. I mean, that was my attitude. I thought it was, yeah. it was difficult to deal with. I wasn't sure I was capable of it. Yeah, told. that's 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 so interesting. I'm, I, it makes me wonder how many people that naturally have these gifts as it runs in the family. Uh, because mm-hmm. in my recent experiences, I had never had any paranormal experiences in my whole life until a couple of years ago when I actually made contact with I, what I now understand as my spirit guides through meditation. And now I can get conversation with those guys going anytime. So uh, that was something you know I never expected because I don't have anything like that. That in my family, I think it just kind of popped online because I was looking at all this stuff and I've been kind of in this realm for so long seeking that maybe I tapped into something, you know? Wow. Wow. It could be. It could it could also be that maybe you do have something, you know, that, that you don't. <laughs> a lot of times we don't know. I mean, there's so many. I always tell people when you start digging around, um, you're going to find, you know, saints and sitters, murderers and the murdered. I found all of those those characters in my family and some I'm really proud of and some I just, oh, my Lord. But they they all make up this pantheon of of individuals. So who knows what that that is? But I do think there's more going on than what I would have ever um, I would at the time when this was happening to me, I was very much of the agnostic. I don't believe this stuff, I, you know, total rationalist. And I still have, you know, that left brain side of me because of a lot of what I do with genealogy is definitely science. You know, when I solve when I solve an issue like a paternity issue, I've got to use the science. But I also use my intuition. It's just like, no, I think your dad's is that guy, even though the, the science might not be point, pointing to whatever. That's another consequence of this. I got deep into the, the scientific aspects of the DNA and do a lot of that kind of work for myself and other people who've come to me for help. So all science, all, you know, that type of thing. But um, but but in a sense, it, it's all the blood. So it all plays place with each other rather nicely. But science can kind of validate for us what some of us already felt. That is very interesting. It opens up so many doors to how the nature of reality works and how we're connected with the past and information that flows. So there's so many uh, directions we could go. But in your notes, I find this interesting. You said that mm-hmm. supernatural occurrences are normal for genealogists. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've got, I've got proof. Now, when I was, this is, this is a really cool thing. So when I was researching this, I wish I would have found this guy earlier. There was a guy, there's a guy, he's still alive. He's in his eighties and he is an actor. I've never heard of Hank, uh, Hank Z like zebra Jones. And I've never heard of him, but Hank is well known in the genealogy sphere as an expert on this very, uh, I'm not even sure I'm pronouncing it correctly. German palatinate, um, individuals it's a, it's a particular um, tribe of germans that immigrated to new york well that's neither here nor there but frank wrote two books frank i'm sorry i'm um, hank wrote two books psychic roots in genealogy and i only discovered them a few years ago when i heard him interviewed but he was just talking about all these people that once they started doing their genealogy stuff these things happen the cemetery stuff i guess is just so blase i shouldn't even be talking about it just it happens to them all but he wrote me a note back and i'll read it to you he said, uh, I'm so glad my two psychic uh, roots books have been interesting to you and to hear that you two have had some almost twilight zone experiences yourself while climbing the family tree. Sure is fun, isn't it? Since publication of my two books, over 1,300 of our fellow genealogists have written and told me of their own stories along these lines. 
it's great to know we have a lot of kindred spirits out there. So that's what, what Hank has said. So it's, he, he's my proof. He's my proof that there is, um, that it happens to all of us. But I would have to say in the sphere of genealogists, many of them are traditionally Christian or other Christian types of religions. And I think they're uncomfortable talking about this stuff mm. um, up front because, ooh, you know, there's a lot of connotations. Um, so there may be something to tapping into it if you're kind of looking in that direction and kind mm -hmm. of uh, playing in those waters, you know? Exa exactly. So there's also the stigma, too. It's like, well, people are going to think you're crazy. And at this point, I don't care. Let them, you know, and people are going to think all these things or else if, if you're traditionally religious, well, this is, of you know, the dark spirits or whatever. So they're afraid of this stuff. But it happens to them anyway. I think that's the yeah. comedy. It's just like it yes. just happens to them. It's a natural and, thing. Uh, it's just what happens. It's, you know? Yeah, and, and I think that also, too, it shakes up our view of, as you said, the reality we construct for ourselves and the, the hard and fast rules that we all carry until they're obliterated by an mm. experience like this. And But we have to allow, I think, too, for, for ourselves to be basically discombobulated and fall apart, whatever until we come back together in a new form, because as we pay attention to them, they rework us, whether we want it or not. And in a sense, they don't follow a Hollywood script. They don't behave real well. Um, it, it's not like everything works out and you're happy ever after. But I think if you take a long view of the thing, they connect you to your past and to your, your present and to your future. You start to realize... What I wrote now is going to affect somebody 100 years after I'm gone. The other thing, too, I would say, I, it's one of those things that's difficult to prove. I think I changed the Eastland by going back there. And that I didn't change the event, but I think because I focused in on it, brought it, one, I'm one of the people who's brought it to the forefront. You will pay attention to this. And you're going to pay attention to what corporations do to people that, in a sense, have no voice, that, in a sense, are not as powerful as you are. And instead of instead of um, waiting around for somebody to acknowledge this, I'll acknowledge it, and I'm going to talk about it. And I'm I'm speaking on behalf of the dead, who couldn't speak. And I'm their voice. I'm the voice of the 844 that mm. perished. And that's an honor. That is one of those things where I just feel as if I will I will be your voice. I will carry this as long as as I'm alive. I will talk about this. And because I want people to connect the atrocities of that time with what happens now, with how certain groups of people are treated certain ways that try to wipe them out of history. I think you're spot on. And I would much rather uh, get information and history from someone who's channeled it from ancestors than somebody who's writing about false history from uh, the academia standpoint that they've just been regurgitated information from years and years, and it's probably a lie to begin with. So, yeah, I'd much rather listen to somebody who thinks, who believes that they are getting the information from an original source or an ancestor, some trusted source like that, because all the information I've ever gotten from my ancestors and spirit guides was nothing but a hundred thousand percent truth and it, it always will be you know and so and i think that all if you're connected to the right uh you know ancestor or yes. spirit mm -hmm. guide it's always going to be the truth they won't be deceiving you i think they're a part of you uh so yeah i hmm. trust that information more than more than mainstream academia most of the time yeah and i think you know what's happened too chris is that with this, this pandemic a lot of documentation that was done at that time 
is now accessible to us. So it's like we can look at the original documents and they back up a lot of what I felt. And they also they also disprove some of the stuff too. So uh, the whole thing, walking into something with confirmation bias, I have to be very careful. It's like, so what really happened here? But there's so much information that you can get that will corroborate what you're told. But it's not, as you point out, it's not the mainstream sources, it's the buried stuff. And having the patience to get into that stuff and look at all this stuff, there are so many things like those photos that I was telling you about. There's just hundreds of photos of this event, the Eastland disaster. There was another film that got lost over in Amsterdam for 100 years that's been brought to the to the front. And it's like a couple seconds, but you can see them pulling bodies out and what this was like. So you see the activity. So there's all kinds of stuff that I think as we pay attention, they they kind of help us uncover stuff that they want uncovered. And they don't want us to repeat, as you said, to regurgitate um, the corporate lines, let's just say, um, one of, one of my very special um, non-alive friends at this point has been the poet Carl Sandburg because he really laid into corporations and he wrote a poem about the Eastland and it's just like, whoa, I would get banned on Facebook if I published or put that poem up there. I would be in Facebook jail for a long time because he just pulled no punches. And he talked about, you know, the negligence of, of these organizations that could have helped people, you know, with just so much as milk and green groceries he talks yeah. about. So I think that Again, that advocacy for justice, too, is another thing. So it's not just sentimentality connecting to the ancestors. It's just like, how do I stand for the past and present and to build our future and to build our future? So I think this whole experience, even though it whacked me out for quite a while and I thought, oh, Lord, um, I think it's made me a, a more connected person, perhaps even a better person than I was when I was just disconnected. And again, I always hope that other people will find a similar connection when they go into their own. Because when you start digging, you don't know what's going to happen. It could, it could just send you down the crazy train for a while. But just hang in there with it. Yeah, yeah very well said. Now, uh, earlier, I want to get into this. You were talking, uh, we briefly touched on why this event is really not remembered in history. And you said you mentioned the mm-hmm. Titanic. It's one of the most re- remembered disasters in history. And you have some mm-hmm. theories on why th- events like these are, are swept under the rug, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, I think it's working class. It's the coal miners, the steel mill workers, the people working in the factories of Western Electric, Hawthorne Works, um, they're not as educated. Perhaps English is not their first language. And I think for, for those people, they just didn't have the agency. They did not have, they couldn't get onto the internet and, and write about something like people can now, you know, crazy or not. They couldn't, they couldn't communicate the way we can communicate. Um, and again, don't forget newspapers. I mean, there were some newspapers that were definitely, you know, the alternative press, even back then, they wrote like Carl Sandburg was writing for one of those. But for the most part, it's like, who who remembers the story, how the story gets told, the story gets told by the people in the dominant culture, not the ones it's happening to. So I think that's part of the Eastland. And again, because people were so traumatized, I don't think, I, I can't imagine there's a way where you and I, we can read and do whatever, but there's a way we'll never know what they felt like. We'll never know what it was like to live in that. Chicago was a dirty, dangerous city. I mean, I love Chicago, but it was something else back then. It was just filled with, you know, it, was, it wasn't very pretty. It was a tough place to live. And so um, I think, again, it was about survival for them and about not remembering. So for them, not remembering was probably their banner. And again, because nobody advocated for working class, nobody um, 
advocated for people of, you know, immigrants, children of immigrants, who cares about those people? You know, they're just, they're, they're expendable, you know, replace them. And that's what happened there too. It's like, you're replaced. And then again, how are you going to survive? And then they end up in places like the workhouse or, so that was an alternative to homelessness, but not much of an alternative. I guess that was pretty rough too. So there's a lot of reasons why that didn't happen. And I think a lot of it again was there were no, Somebody wrote that the, their lives, the loss of their lives were of no consequence to anyone other than their families. And it was harsh, but I think it was true. And again, I think it is up to us who have this stuff in our history to do what we can to make sure that um, from generation to generation, the stories told my young nephew, who's 19, 20 at this point, he was so intrigued by the story. He said, that happened to us. And I said, yes, it did happen to us. And he said, well, how does that affect us? I said, well, it, it caused a lot of trauma that got traveled down through grandma, great grandma, and to, to all of us. We live with the trauma, even though the, the trauma is exquisite, I would say. It's not anything that you love. I don't love it. I'm sorry this happened to our family because I have it on all sides. But I've learned to look at the gift inside the trauma, not that I welcome it. Um, not that I think everything happens for a reason. I think the reason was negligence and it was stupidity and I'm quite angry about it. But I think you can take that trauma and turn turn those flames and turn that ash into something and use it as a motivator to, you know, if not, never again, but at least I can put a speed bump up and just say, look at what you're doing. Look at what happened here. Do you really want to keep repeating this nonsense? You know, um, and the thing is, all people are valuable. Now, and what's happened in the past few years is quite amazing with the amount of people that are realizing the uh, deception that we were just speaking of in the academia and the mainstream and how a lot of our history is just I mean, mainly written by the victors and we don't get the real story behind anything but a lot of that is changing in the past couple of years <laughs> we have yeah. people that are looking into things more just because of the deception that's become quite evident um, which is a great thing and I think there's this mass awakening going on right now do you think this will change the future of the way information is presented the way uh, education the education system is uh, the way academia presents things because people don't want to hear bs anymore you know i think some some, some kind of are comfortable with the bs i hate well, to say yeah. that but yeah. i think i would say the majority of people probably will still stay in the middle of that bell-shaped curve however i think the curve is flattened now it's getting flat flatter by these discoveries by things that you can't unsee and, and also, too, I think it requires from people um, to not go into confirmation bias. It really requires a lot of discipline for those of us who kind of maybe think we have a clue, but also to admit, okay, this is what I think it is, but also to be happy to be proven wrong, too. It's like, I think this is it. So approaching it like a scientist. This is my hypothesis. I think the Eastland's forgotten because it's all, we're working class. Is that true? I don't know. But let's do some more research. Let's do some more alternative documentation and let's look at that let's get a clue from a photograph so i think it's the way we use our heads a little bit differently i do think every 30 40 years or so i think what happens is things blow up regardless of what the outside circumstances are and we question those un you know those those truths that basically were never movable so i think that's probably part of what's happening now 
when I look back at um, another relative of mine who was a child during the, the famous flu epidemic of 1918, she began to watch the effects of this because it was just, you know, there was no medicine, nothing that, that could really help this. People were dying right and left. She started to notice the mental health problems that were coming about in people and she couldn't you know, put her finger on it. Many years later, she became who's, uh, somebody who founded the profession of modern psychiatric nursing. And I think that that's happening as well as, as these you know, children right now are looking at this. They're thinking of a profession that hasn't been invented yet, might not happen in, in your lifetime, my lifetime. But somebody like my cousin Hildegard looked at this and just said, hmm, this isn't quite right. And I need to come up with a different way. So I think that is happening in the midst of this chaos. So there's there's always something that comes out of this, if nothing else, just kind of a questioning of old ways. And should we destroy everything? I don't think that's a good idea either, because having, you know, relatives that kind of sur didn't survive the Russian Revolution, I'm thinking that's not a good idea, okay? Mm. But you have to kind of take things apart slowly. And sometimes you have to force things. But I think just be aware that of the connective tissue. Again, we are all connected to things. And once you dismantle one thing, the whole thing's going to go. And do you really want that? I don't know. I, I would, would, I always, I proceed with a little more caution than I did when I was younger and I was always, ah, bird things. but um, because you see the, hum the, the, the inhumane consequences of, of things too. So I think compassion should always be the guiding force by what we do. Um, understanding that those people think that they're right too, and they might be just absolutely whacked out. But by the same token, it's just like um, empathy, trying to put trying to put ourselves in the other actor's shoes, if only to just say, "Whoa, I don't want to stay in those shoes for very long." But I get what you're saying, but I, I can't live with that. So, but make sure it's an informed choice. That's what I would say. Yeah. Now, having had this experience writing this book, do you think yeah. you would utilize uh, these kind of gifts and and experiences that you've had again, maybe tapping into what you did before to write another book or maybe something else? It's happening right now. I think that it's coming about because people keep, I, I really didn't write this. I didn't write a bestseller. I didn't try to write a bestseller. I thought, eh, maybe a few relatives will buy it, you know, because they feel like they feel sorry for me. And I really didn't think it would take off, but it's taken off without my really doing much to make that happen. So I thought there's something powerful. So I think my next thing is to figure out why is this powerful for people? I also, I'm, I'm working on getting the audio book recorded. And I think that will help as well. That's another way of transmitting um, the information because I listen to audio books all the time and podcasts. And I prefer that uh, way of learning. And also writing about the book behind the book, because people have asked me, well, how much of this is true? I said, well, it's fiction, so it's all true, you know, and um, and to play with people's minds and stuff, but really realize how um, when you write a book, less so than an article, but when you write a book, it changes you. So I think looking at that and in terms of gifts or abilities, like you've said about yourself, it's just like they're always there. I think I, I'm. I would say I'm centered enough and not, um, I don't need attention from other people. In fact, I prefer not to have any attention, truth be told, because I want them to do well. I, I really want you to do well. It's like, I want your life to be changed. I'm okay. I'm okay where I'm at. But I think the point that you come to a point in your life where you really want to be more generous of spirit and, and basically be there for others and help them find their own, what they already have. I think there's nothing I can give anybody that they don't already have. Um, so 
I think that's the thing in helping other writers tell their story, helping other genealogists, helping, I mean, a lot of what I do again is help people find their past. That's the most satisfying thing I do. Somebody will come to me and just say, I don't know who my father was. Can you help? Sure, I can help. And things like that. That is so satisfying. And um, to connect them. And again, you don't always find wonderful things, but you find the truth. It's like, this is your father. This is your family. Just as I found, this is my family. And they're all just insane, but I love them. So that's, I think that's the biggest thing. Just learning to embrace the hot mess of your own background is like the most powerful thing you can do. Right. And um, yeah, engage with it. Yeah, and one of, mo- one of the most fascinating things that I found about all of this is when we were talking about the blood and DNA connections, mm-hmm. um, I really think that this is an area that is very profound, and I think that there are many in uh, high levels of power and in academia and politics that don't want us to know these specific things about ourselves, these connections, for whatever reason, to keep their power, whatever, um, mm-hmm. but this is the biggest part of, I think, where we're going as a society is learning these connections to our past to ourselves to everything that we're all connected through whatever it is blood dna mm-hmm. but uh looking more in these directions is i think where we're ultimately headed and all where we need to head and those mm-hmm. that are trying to kind of keep us from going there are putting up a bigger fight now than ever and i think they're i think they're actually losing it, it doesn't look too good for them <laughs> I think so too. I think you know, so many of us, um, a lot of people, if you look at the DNA realm, um, somebody like CC Moore, she was an actor, I think, and she learned how to, to read DNA, you know, uh, printouts as she became what we call a citizen scientist. So there are a lot of us that are citizen scientists. We don't necessarily have the credentials, but the proof is in the fact that we figured things out. And the same with being locked down the way we have, like I've become a, a citizen scientist for our own backyard in terms of like watching the squirrels and the different ailments and dealing with them and stuff like that, because normally you don't have the kind of time to look at squirrels, right? Yeah. So stuff like that. So in terms of um, when there's kind of a flattening of something, there's also all of us creatives. And I'm guessing you're one of those as well, by the virtue of the fact that you have this podcast and you're thinking some interesting thoughts, we always find a way. And I think that it is up to us of the creatives to find a way and to, in a sense, point the way you can't force anybody through the door, but at least show that there's a different way of thinking and being, and that benefits all of us um, in a way that having this constant, um, whatever you want to call it, the, I would say the corporations, I mean, that's who I look at too. It's just like they have um, no, you know, really in a sense, 1915 until now, they don't have our best interests at heart. So it's basically, instead of feeling victimized by these things, what can I do to take my power back? One of those is to become, to do what you're doing right now, to do what I'm doing right now as an independent author, to be a citizen scientist, to do whatever. And um, and to stay anchored though too, and not go with every, just because somebody's charismatic and says something, it's like, no, I don't think so. You know, I, yeah. Use your own um, critical thinking skills, sharpen those learn how to really research something and learn to be wrong. I think that's a beautiful thing. A little humility yeah. goes a long way. That's what I have found. It's like, whoops, Definitely. screwed that up. Oh, well, yeah, <laughs> moving well, on. It, it's so great that your book is actually bringing these events to light for people and they're learning about our real history. Uh, so th- thank you for that. And before we uh, close out tonight, is uh, there anything new that you're working on or anything you'd like to let the audience know about before we head out? 
Well, I'm just, again, I'm working on the audio book and that's, I'm learning how to become my very own personal audio engineer. And I'm working on, I'm calling it like 200 wrong ways to write your family history book. That's the way I'm, I'm um, writing about it. Just like all the things that can go wrong. I want everybody to be interested in their family. If that's, um, if that's, that's kind of a lofty goal, but I really want everybody to just take a look at their own background. I'm not talking about immediate family, but just their whole history, because within that is a lot of power. And so that's, and satisfaction and love and connection. So those are the things I'm working on at the moment. And again, I, I um, will see what the future brings, but at least this part of the journey, I thought it would be done. It's not done. It's just continuing. And uh, I thank you too for this. It's a lovely conversation. It's great to meet you. And yes, um, yeah, it's awesome. Awesome. Well, for sure. Uh, before you head out, let the audience know best place they can find your book. If you have any social media, uh, the best way they can get uh, in, uh, any information about you. Sure. Um, so the best way to probably to contact me is through my website. And I do have, it's a long name, but it's www.flowerintheriverrundogether.com. So that's flowerintheriver.com. You do show notes, right, Chris? You can put that in there. Yes, for sure. And that's that's probably the best way. And I have my contact information in there. I am on Twitter and on Instagram and I, fa- I don't really have an author's page on Facebook. That's just my private stuff. But it, uh, LinkedIn, I'm there as well. So I'm I'm pretty available. Not a big social media person because I'm too busy writing, but I'm there. So, yeah. Great. Well, That's thank you people. so much, Natalie. That was fantastic. And I'd love to talk thank to you again Chris. in the future. Hope so. You take care. Yes, for sure. Until next time, everyone, have an excellent evening. And we'll talk again Sunday, I believe. See you then. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.